to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And it is because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does this matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convicted of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. My name's Mike. I'm going youth preacher mode. My beloved Madonna Mike is not working. And that's okay, just sort of sums up how we're tracking with tech tonight. But it is good to be here. And if you are new in the building or online, uh, so good to have you with us. And yes, I am very excited about Alpha tomorrow and helping people explore the good news of Jesus. And if tonight you are here exploring, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, And this is a cracking letter and chapter to get into. Uh, Paul, he just just oozes uh, encouragement, peace, joy. And he's doing that in, in lockdown. Now, I know a little bit about lockdown, just a little bit. Uh, This time last year, you would have been listening to me through your computer. I would have been preaching to a camera, which would have been just set up just there, which was always a weird experience because the room was empty. I just had to stare kind of point blank down the camera, and it got really boring after a while. And also kind of my whole extroversion quota wasn't being filled, and I was getting a little bit sad at points. And homeschooling 
It was a disaster. Um, a little bit about lockdown. I think if I was to write a kind of a letter during lockdown uh, as I experienced it, I would have had some great things to say. I would have been joyful about the way the good news was going out digitally to kind of more people perhaps than, you know, would have walked through the doors of our church. That was a great thing. I would have been able to uh, find other reasons to be encouraged, but I, I no doubt would have leaked a little bit uh, some of my frustration, some of my disappointments. I just, I don't get that from Paul. He doesn't leak disappointments or frustrations. He's just all the way down rejoicing. What is that? Because when you think about it, I know nothing about lockdown. What Paul suffered was a great injustice, imprisoned in multiple locations. Uh, He suffered greatly for the gospel. In this particular case, we think Philippians was written in Rome, and he was in Rome because at the end of his final missionary journey, uh, he ended up in Jerusalem, Uh, the whole mob mentality thing went down, people were accusing him of dishonoring the temple, of kind of uh, negating the old ways, and kind of, what are you letting the the Gentiles in for, kind of thing. And, And that ended up really nasty, he had to kind of be guarded by a whole sort of Roman battalion. Uh, he appealed towards Herod to kind of hear his case. Herod didn't really know what to do with it. And so finally, after two years of being in prison, Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights here. I demand my case be heard by Caesar, which is a big call. So he, he pursued that. Uh, off he went across the, the waters uh, to Rome, where he sat uh, house arrest style uh, in lockdown that way for two years. And then the book of Acts just finishes. That's the season he probably wrote this letter to the Philippians. And I don't read any of discouragement from him. In fact, he is all about encouraging others. And when I ask the question, why is Paul so upbeat? How does he have such joy? I'm hoping that if we can answer that from the passage, that we might be able to answer that for ourselves. We struggle so much for contentment. We struggle so much for joy when things are not working out. And our circumstances might be a bit easier. Even our hardest days might be a bit easier than Paul. So I'm hoping this is a blessing to you. Keep Philippians open on your screen, Bible app, or if you've got a physical Bible with you, that's great too. Um, And there'll be some time for Q&A at the end. But let's kind of just walk through some of the problems that Paul sees, how he addresses them. And I want to show you a deeper problem that Paul is torn about. And uh, at that point, we'll kind of get to the real heart of this passage. But the first thing, it's, it, there's an obvious problem here. He needs to address it. He's in chains. That would be a great discouragement to those that are partnering with him in the gospel. And he wants to address that straight up. And uh, as we look at that, that's going to start in verse 12. Uh, I've only got one hand here. There we go. Cool. So, as Paul begins to address his predicament, he's more concerned about them than himself. Because it would have been easy for him to say, I'm in chains, I need your prayers. Instead, rolling off the back of the beginning of chapter 1 that we looked about last week, he says, this is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, he writes, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's all about them. He's all about God. And now he get, addresses his chains. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel. He doesn't say what's happened is a real downer. He's actually reframing that entirely. He is not writing about something to bemoan, but to actually he just looks past it. He totally reframes it. And it's not like he can just live stream on Zoom at this point It's not that he can just sort of pivot his ministry strategy. He he actually just 
entirely reframes it in God's sovereignty and in what God's doing. And in verse 13, we read, As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And so when the palace guard who are holding him in house arrest kind of look at Paul, Paul, why are you in chains? Paul has a chance to tell them, have you heard about Jesus from the other side of the Mediterranean? About the good news of Jesus living, dying and rising again? Oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. And not only that, but the palace guard get to see that Paul, despite being in chains, captive to the, to the political authorities of the day, that he is entirely captivated by Christ, that despite his chains, he is rejoicing. Despite kind of what looks like a downer, he has deep peace and contentment and hope. What's that about Paul? And so his whole life was on display. And Paul says, that's a reason to be encouraged. The, the, the gospel is advancing. The whole palace guard and everyone else that I come across knows about Christ. And his testimony has, has gone out so far as to encourage, verse 14, the brothers and sisters who have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, someone in the morning service picked up on just this word, confident. How have the brothers and sisters become confident in the Lord because Paul's in chains? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Why would they be more confident because Paul is in chains? Surely it's got something to do with what we see Paul's heart on display, but also the way that God has been working because Paul's not reflecting on sort of like, wouldn't it be great if? He's reflecting on what's already happening. He's kind of trust, his radical trust in God is already being vindicated. That is, the palace guard already know about Jesus now. All that have come across him already know about Jesus. And the brothers and sisters are already being emboldened to take the good news without fear. He's pointing to all those things and saying, God is good. God is faithful. The good news cannot be shackled. And again, I, I just find it so easy to imagine what Paul could have said instead of these things. He could have written a really politically charged piece, saying, referring to kind of like, you know, the authority of Christ and, and kind of like revving up an upheaval of the authorities of the day, kind of break these chains. But he doesn't write that. He could have kind of guilt-tripped them a little bit about his predicament and said, you know, if you're not kind of in chains, then you're not doing a good enough job for Jesus. But he doesn't do that either. Instead, Paul kind of escapes all the, the traps of the human hearts and the desires that so easily ensnares, and he just finds a gospel route straight through the middle of it all with this peace, this contentment, this hope. How can you reframe whatever predicament you find yourself in? How might you be more thankful than discouraged? How might you be able to be patient so as to allow God to do his work in you. One of the kind of challenges, perhaps, of youthful enthusiasm, let's call it that, is in impatience. And one of the great things about being in a, a church, a body of believers, where there's older, wiser Christians, perhaps, is you get to see how God has woven his marvelous plan over time, beyond the kind of immediate circumstances that might cause us grief to show us that really God does have a plan for us. And just as Paul is able to reframe and see what God is doing despite being in chains, he's able to rejoice. Now, a little sidebar here on justice before we move on to the next bit. It would be an injustice 
to kind of come away from this part and say, look, if you're suffering an injustice, just be happy, happy, joy, joy for Jesus and kind of don't worry about it. (laughs) Paul has pursued justice. I outlined that at the beginning, that he has appealed as a Roman citizen to pursue justice. But the thing is, Paul knows that in this world, the tides of circumstances, the tides of justice and injustice wash in and out. He knows that in this sinful, broken world, it might not work out for the good. What is just? What is righteous? So he pursues it as much as he can. But his deeper confidence, his secure hope and joy is rooted in Christ not in that justice that he pursues in this world. And it makes me think of a Spurgeon quote that I've just been loving since I heard it a few weeks ago, and that is this. Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw us against the rock of Christ. Friends, there are circumstances that you might be feeling right now that are less than ideal, that are causing you stress. It would be easy to bemoan those, to be discouraged. In some act of radical trust, would you learn to kiss the waves that throw you against the rock of Christ? That you might learn to trust him in radical and extraordinary ways. The second obvious problem that Paul identifies in verse 15 as as, as something that might be discouraging the Philippians is this problem of rivalry and envy. He writes this, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, this one's interesting. We're going to mirror read a little bit about what might be happening, because we're not entirely sure, but my guess is, is, as kind of Paul expands on this, that there's people preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for him while he is in chains. And I can imagine this scenario, perhaps, where Paul has been this great authority, He's been the greatest missionary the world's ever known. And he's, as he's gone about different parts of the Roman Empire, he's not only started new churches, but he's defended the gospel. And now that he's kind of like taken out of action, there's a space that's opened up and there's maybe a few upstarts, a few kind of young believers who want the glory that Paul had and kind of step into that space and start preaching kind of out of mixed motives. Now, Paul when he hears about this, I love his response. He says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Again, it's so easy to imagine Paul saying, what are these punks doing? I have worked so hard for this work. Do you not know that I've given up kind of being a Pharisee of Pharisees and all the glory that went attached to that? I gave all that up so that I might follow Jesus and I've been slaving away, starting new churches, facing great pressure and persecution to defend the gospel. And now that I'm in chains, these upstarts are filling that space and messing up my work. It doesn't sound like Paul, does it? And that's not what he wrote at all. He said, what does it matter? As long as Christ is preached. I almost find Paul here a little too zen, kind of a little bit too casual. I mean, the Paul of kind of the the New Testament is at times quite agitated by people who don't preach well. Where is that, Paul? Arc up a little bit, brother. But in the other cases of the New Testament, say Corinthians or Galatians, where he presses up against and kind of rails against people who are not preaching well, it's because they've corrupted the gospel itself not just kind of mixed motives, but they've actually changed the gospel. And that is the thing that Paul will not stand for. 
But in this case, it seems like the gospel's still going out. Even though these people might have kind of, you know, some stuff going on, the gospel's still going out, and for that, that is reason for Paul's joy. But just to push a little bit further, I do find it strange that just in this next chapter, uh, chapter 2, the sort of center point, centerpiece of Philippians, we're going to be called to give up selfish ambition. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, have the mind of Christ. You would think he would want preachers to be exhibiting that. And indeed, anyone who preaches the good news and doesn't live it is kind of a, a hypocrite. So how is Paul comfortable with that? Well, I guess we get to the fact that main game is the gospel. But secondly, I think Paul's got an appreciation. He references progress and maturity many times in the letter. Paul has an appreciation that we are broken vessels and that it's not ideal that these people are preaching for mixed motives. But above all, let Christ be preached. Let the good news that, that transforms people so that you might be able to see how these people have mixed motives. If they really are preaching Christ, that's going to change them. If they eat the words they speak, it will change them and transform them. And he wants the good news of Jesus, the wonder of Christ, the one who died and rose again to give us new life. He wants that message proclaimed over death, over chains, over disease, over disruption over mixed motives. Let that ring out, he says. And again, Paul seems to be able to sidestep what seems to be obvious problems. He reframes them. He still speaks of the joy that he has and the hope that he has. I watched the uh, Queen's Gambit recently. I know I'm a few months behind trend. It's kind of typical. Uh, I was on holidays. Uh, this place I started had Netflix. I was like, I'll watch one thing, one episode. You should, you should never just watch one episode of a series. We loved it, and then we left the place and lost Netflix. Uh, but I finally caught up on it all. I, has anyone seen it? Oh, do you like chess now? I'm, I'm enjoying chess again. But one of the things that I loved about The Queen's Gambit was that Beth Harmon is just an incredibly, amazingly intuitive, imaginative, ruthless strategist. She can imagine kind of all the possibilities and permutations of her chess pieces and the opponents, and she, in her head, has this kind of cunning plan to destroy through rook and pawn to get to queen, to king, and win. Now, there is a danger that we think of the gospel proclamation and the strategy to advance the gospel as a game of chess, that we have to be some kind of Beth Harmon, some kind of elite strategist, someone who can outwit every kind of thing that comes our way. Because I get really agitated when I join all the dots in my head. I've got a plan for Jesus, and I've kind of got it all lined up, and then someone cuts in. Some circumstances pushes against, like COVID. Like when we started the year, said God gives the growth, and then we had COVID. But the thing is, Paul is not a Beth Harmon. He is not outwitting the kind of the opposition, the problems he finds. And we're not called to just be extra smart to try and overcome these obvious problems. Paul is playing an altogether different game. When it looks like he's about to be outmoved, his character, his hope, his joy is rooted in something much deeper than the game that everyone seems to be playing. For he has eyes to see something glorious, something beautiful, something richer. 
And that's where I want to take us next, into kind of the engine room, as it were, of Paul's deliverance. And that language of deliverance is straight from the text. Verse 19, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Look at his confidence. I love it. An optimist. My wife does not like that about me because my optimism gets me into trouble. But Paul is definitely an optimist. I'll hold on to that. But I think the word deliverance, it's the same word used for salvation. So we could read that as kind of uh, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. And I think there's something going on there because Paul's deliverance in his circumstances is very related to his salvation. At least his confidence in God to work his goodness is, is rooted in the fact that he is saved. How do you be saved? By trusting Jesus and his death for you. It's as simple as that. You don't need to be kind of an awesome missionary. You don't need to do a bunch of good works hoping that God will be pleased with you. Salvation is rooted in trusting in Jesus and his gift for you. And having trusted Jesus, having been saved, he is now confident that, quoting straight from chapter 1, he who has began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. And so being saved, God, Paul is now confident that that same God who is saved is at work in him now. And that gives him confidence to be delivered. Friends, we don't just get a ticket to heaven uh, and kind of, we just don't worry about what happens here. No, no, no. By the Holy Spirit, we are bound up in Christ so that what is Christ is ours. And what was ours in our sinfulness has now been taken care of in Jesus. And that means that God is at work in us now. So Paul has confidence that God is going to do something in his life. And the Holy Spirit is is one of the key provisions that God has given him that, that kind of fuels his engine. Look at those two things that Paul speaks about through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because those that are praying for him are praying in a line with the Holy Spirit. Because they too are filled with the Spirit. They'd be praying things like, uh, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. They'd be praying, lead him not to temptation. The words Jesus has given them to pray. They would be advocating that Paul indeed would be delivered. And so there is this pervading hope of deliverance, not despair. Paul is hoping that he will be released from his chains to be able to serve them and go on with a fruitful labor. However, Paul is not completely unaware of the possibility that his imprisonment might end in death. While he is courageous in his confidence of deliverance, he writes... I eagerly expect and hope that in no way that I'll be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul uses the exaltation of Christ as that that calibrates every circumstance. He doesn't know the future. He's confident God's going to do something. But he gives it all up 
that Christ might have the glory. And we've just seen that on display when it would have been so easy for Paul to be triggered with some kind of egocentric, this is my ministry. Instead, he's like, it's Jesus' ministry. I don't worry how it's going out. And I'm not worried that I'm in prison. It's Jesus' ministry, and I'm confident in him. That's just one example of how Paul puts everything on the table for the exaltation of Christ above all. But then Paul gives this cracking line. You might know it. It's such a famous verse, 21. He takes all the promises of Christ. He takes all his theology, all that he's seen God do, and he bundles it up into this existential gem that he's buried deep in his heart, and he writes this, for to me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Everything I do in my body is for Christ. Whether it's in chains or not, it's all for Jesus. And I trust that he's working in me. But should I die, that's a gain too, because I will go on to see Christ. He writes verse 23, I desire to depart and be with Christ. He loves Jesus. And he can't wait to be embraced physically in the arms of his Savior. And this is the real problem for Paul. Verse 23, I am torn. This is what tears him up, not his enchainedness, not the rivalry and envy that's going on. That doesn't tear him up. What he is torn by is his earnest desire to be with his Savior and the desire to help those in need before him. Could you imagine how much life would be different if we could reframe our view of life what burdens our heart with what tears Paul apart. He doesn't long for death in some kind of, I don't know, weird kind of sense. He just wants to be with Jesus, but he earnestly desires to serve, to do fruitful ministry, and convinced of this, he wants to remain. He thinks that's the logic. What we get from the early church historians, Eusebius, for instance, is that it's likely that Paul did die at the end of Acts, that he was beheaded under Caesar. We don't know what is around the corner. God does. We ought to be courageous in our confidence that God really will do a great work in us, but we don't know exactly what that is. Instead, all we can say is to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when the fear of death has been taken away, when we acknowledge that if Jesus was raised from the death, from the dead, through the Holy Spirit, and if we take that fear away, then we are liberated to live, to love, and to go about fruitful labor despite the circumstances. Friends, this will change your life. Are we ready to take up the greatest challenge to calibrate our every circumstance to the exaltation of Christ? Perhaps one of our greatest challenges as we try and do that is this kind of this comfort that we enjoy. I mean, we've been through a hard year, but we still, comparatively, we're doing very well. Now, I don't know everyone's circumstances. But when we're doing well, when we're enjoying blessings, like the freedom to be able to go out after church and have a good meal or have a drink or whatever, it's easy for us to not have this courageous sense of confidence that God is doing a great work because it's all pretty good. 
We're not earnestly depending on the Holy Spirit and the advocacy of the prayer of the saints to go about Christ's work. We're not being torn up inside for a longing to be with Christ or to serve those here in this world. Friends, we're being called to give our every hope to Jesus. We are being called to join our work with Christ as fruitful labor. We're being called to cast out our every fear that Christ might be proclaimed in our actions and words. We're being called to long beyond rivalry and flaws to see a greater work. Think of just one thing over this last week that's caused you to be anxious and maybe even find a way to reframe that as something that's throwing you against the rock of Christ. Seize every moment that you might trust more and more in Christ. I want to finish by sharing a story of, um, of Eric Liddell. Uh, you might have watched Chariots of Fire. Would you believe I, I, I'm going to refer to the story and haven't watched it, but I've read lots about him. It's on Disney+, Plus. I might even watch it tonight. But it is a well-known story, uh, and I believe there's a bit of creative license in the movie. But the movie only tells half the story. If you haven't familiar with the story at all, it, the, the 32nd version is that uh, he's a Christian man, he's an extraordinary athlete, and as he goes about trying to connect his faith with his ambitions and what he's good at, he finds himself kind of on the way to the Olympics. And as the 100-meter heats uh, are scheduled for a Sunday, he, he's already made the decision that, and he's made this clear, that Sunday is the Lord's Day. Not in some legalistic sense, but that's just one of the ways that he lives for Christ really clearly. And he said, I'm not going to compete. And so he doesn't compete in the 100-meter heats and therefore is eliminated from the prospects of winning a medal in the Olympics of that event. He gives up that like it was nothing because every day he's been living for Jesus. That's just another example where he lays it down for Christ. In the meantime, six months out, uh, he kind of retrains for the 400 meters, which has heats on Saturdays. And that's no small feat to train from 100 meters to 400. It's a very different race. Wins the gold medal. Hooray. But that's the story of the movie. What I'm more interested in is the second part of the story the movie doesn't cover at all. Because he grew up in China to missionary parents. And after every book deal and kind of, you know, thing was thrown at him after the Olympics, he gave all that up. That was nothing to him, and went back to China to work as missionary. He was married at that stage, had a couple of kids, and he did a great work serving particularly uh, youth uh, in training them in sciences, um, in, in teaching about Jesus. But it was a crazy time for the world. Japan was moving into China. Uh, he ended up in an internment camp. Europe called his family back. He decided to stay. So he farewells his pregnant wife, his kids, and stays and keeps teaching the kids about Jesus, tries to lift spirits in tumultuous times. And the thing is, is he keeps doing that for Jesus with great joy because he's sown in through the good seasons, a great joy and a great hope, so that when hard times really hit, he's able to continue because he trusts in the same Jesus. His circumstances have changed. And he's able to say this, and these words come from depending on the promises of Jesus, knowing Jesus, but also seeing God at work in his life time and time again. He writes this, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. Our broken lives are not lost or useless. God comes in 
and takes calamity and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. that's That's a beautiful quote, but that quote is written through tears and suffering and joy. Friends, let us take up everything we have and surrender it all to Christ. The last letter he wrote to his wife, because he was complaining of headaches, of dizziness, and ultimately he had a brain tumor that killed him. And he never saw his family again. The last words of his last letter to his wife were three words. It's complete surrender. May everything we do exalt Christ. May we live out what it means to live for Christ and to acknowledge that even death is gain. And friends, without the fear of death, death of plans, death of ambitions, death of self, let us be liberated to live a life of love, of fruitful labor, so that Christ might get the glory. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.